All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Weinstein, who is the Associate Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine and Pediatrics at IU. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Today we're going to talk about seizures. One of my favorite topics. Okay, good, because you're stuck now. You have to <laughs> And just for our listeners, uh, neurologic disorders as a whole account for about 3% of the PEDS board exam, which we've talked about in the past. The highest percentage is 5 So seizures are obviously just a small portion of the neuro exam, but um, important nonetheless. So with that, we will get started. So first, we'd like to talk to you about um, what makes you think when someone presents that it's a seizure and not something else. Yeah. So seizures are tricky, right? And certainly most of my frame of reference comes from working in an emergency department, but a lot of the same kinds of kids will present to their pediatrician's office if it's not when they're having an acute seizure, right? So the kid where maybe something funny happened at home or maybe something funny happened at school or someone's been noticing some things, but they're not actually acutely seizing right now, may just as easily present to their primary care as they might to the emergency department. And those are the kids that are often harder to sort out. Because the child who's actively seizing in front of you... It's not in, super rocket science. Most in most cases, it's not super rocket science. As you know, Ashley, it can be tricky, right? So yeah. we see kids in subclinical status, or while it's less common, we do see kids with a psychogenic non-epileptiform seizures, or pseudo-seizures as they've previously been called. So the question I think you had was, how do you determine, based on history in most cases, was this a seizure or was this something else. And the differential, as you know, for seizure activity is pretty vast. So it can be really serious stuff like syncopal events or scary things like breath-holding spells. It can be the Sandifer syndrome we see with reflux. It can be, it can be kids with tics, right? So there's a lot of stuff on that, on that differential. And unfortunately, history alone is not always enough to get you there. So for example, some of the things that we rely on in our history is what was the specific behavior that you noticed. So some seizures um, result in loss of consciousness, essentially. So kids are unresponsive during that time. Some kids can still be sort of responsive during seizures. And then we really hang our hats a lot of the time on this postdictal period, right? But postdictal periods aren't always predictable, and they're not necessarily super noticeable in really young kids, right? So a four-month-old, like, a lot of their general state is sort of postictal, right? They, they sleep, sleep a lot. lot. Yeah. Yeah. So it, so it can be tricky sometimes by history. One of the things that we have to our advantage now in 2016, soon to be 2017, is smartphones, which has really changed the game in a lot of ways because parents are quick to video what they see. And you can also ask them to video what they see. So if they have called you and they're coming in, ask if they've taken a video or encourage them to do that. They also have kids on monitors a lot at night, and some of those smart monitors actually have video capability. So for kids that are having events during their sleep time, that's something that you can see. So that can help tremendously, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. But when you don't have a picture, there are obviously things we can ask about. In older kids, you can try and get a sense of the specific movements. Is this uh, a deviation in gaze? Is it repetitive? Oral motor, oral motor it's a hard movements, it's hard. that's a hard one to say, uh, or repetitive limb shaking, or are they having full tonic-clonic movements, or are they just 
having absence types of episodes. And then specifically what precedes the event or what preceded the events they've noticed and what happens later. Do they have a postictal period that's identifiable? Who's witnessed it? When has it happened? How often has it happened? That sort of stuff can all be helpful. Okay, so you have someone come in. You believe it was a seizure. They are afebrile. This is important. And it's the first one ever, and they're normal now. What do you do? So some of that depends on age. So age is a big issue for this. So any child in the, who's a neonate, so any kid under a month of age who has a seizure or something that seems like it was a seizure, gets a pretty extensive workup regardless of whether they were febrile or not because they're, they're at much higher risk for big badness than an 8-year-old who comes in and is totally back to baseline and fine and we think pretty convincingly that they had a seizure that was non-febrile. So let's talk about the easy populations first, and we'll get to neonatal kids later because I know you want to talk about them as well. Uh-huh. So let's assume older, so three, four, five, six-year-olds. They're back to baseline. There's uh, still some risk stratification that needs to happen. So there have been a lot of studies, at least for the EM literature, looking at what we need to do from an emergency standpoint for these kids. So the things that we think about, right, are could they have some sort of electrolyte disturbance, so we need to look at that. Could they have some sort of intracranial abnormality that we need to identify quickly? Those are probably the biggest things. And then lastly, could there be something infectious going on? So from an electrolyte standpoint, obviously we think about the more common electrolyte disturbances that can make people seize hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, or issues with calcium. Calcium in older kids, unless they've got some sort of metabolic metabolic abnormality, is not really much of an issue, typically. Sodium and glucose are the things we worry about most. But if a kid is older, healthy, back to baseline, and they don't have underlying disease processes that put them at risk for problems with their electrolytes, then they don't need any kind of serum testing for electrolytes. So kids that I would consider would be a child with a suggestive history, so they've had some weird diarrheal illness for the last week and a half and now they're seizing, I'd probably check things out. Or the child with an underlying endocrinopathy, I'd probably go and take a look at their electrolytes. But if they're otherwise healthy and they're six and they're smiling at me and they're fine, I don't need to check their blood sugar. I know their blood sugar is fine just by looking at them, actually. A clinical exam helps a lot. (laughs) That being said, younger children probably do merit having some blood tests done. So there have been a lot of studies, again, looking at this. Specifically, kids under six months of age are at much higher risk for hyponatremia, right? Because, because they don't know how to make formula. Well, they, they definitely well, they don't, don't, don't obviously. <laughs> Maybe their parents. Yeah, so formula over-dilution is yeah. a real thing. Um, and so when they've done studies at this, there's a reasonably high number of kids in that age group who actually have electrolyte abnormalities and low sodium are one of the, are one of the big ones. So kids under six months of age, regardless of how good they look, ought to have basic laboratory testing. Some people bump that up to a year of age just because I tend to do that. I fall a little bit more on the conservative side of the evaluation. So kids under one get a little bit more of an evaluation for me. So that's labs. Let's talk about brain imaging, right? So there are a bunch of opportunities for brain imaging. You can get head CT, you can get MRI. In the really itty bitties, you can start with ultrasound, theoretically. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we try and avoid radiation when we can, but MRIs are not always a feasible test to get very quickly. Certainly from the emergency department, they're not always feasible, and especially in your younger kids, they may require sedation, so it's a big deal to get that scheduled. They've done, again, a lot of studies looking at which kids actually need emergent imaging and which don't. And 
by and large, older, healthy, back to baseline, do not need emergent imaging. Now, they may need an MRI down the road, and that's something that you can discuss with your neurologist. You're going to send these kids for follow-up anyway, whether or not they'd like you to schedule that or whether or not they want to see the child first. But this isn't the kid, generally speaking, that you need to send emergently to the emergency department or if you're seeing them in an emergency department that you need to emergently scan. There are some kids who need to have imaging more emergently. The risk factors for this, there are a lot of them, so it's probably not great to list <laughs> all of them. But it boils down to kids who have underlying disease processes that put them at greater risk for intracranial abnormality. So this would include your kids who have hematologic derangement, so bleeding kids with disorders. bleeding disorders or sickling disorders, right? Okay. So sickle cell disease, um, kids who've had strokes. So we do have kids who've had strokes. Obviously, our kids are going to want to image children with uh, congenital heart disease that put them at, with mixing lesions, that put them at risk for thrombotic phenomena. Those are kids that you're going to want to go ahead and get imaging for. Children with history of VP shunt are a whole other category, right? Uh -huh. Kids who have any sort of trauma in their recent history are kids you're going to want to image to make sure there's not bleeding. A concern for NAT. Yes. So concern for NAT is an absolute must. And the trick, obviously, with NAT is we usually don't get the history that there's concern for NAT. Right. We get the history true. that weird stuff is going on. And so for that reason, there are a lot of people that actually advocate imaging in kids under a year of age regardless if there's seizure activity because some of those kids may be kids who have blood in their head, and that's the only reason that we know about it. Other risk factors that would make you more likely to image uh, for a seizure include hemihypertrophy, uh, often seen with Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, history of malignancy, history of hydrocephalus, um, or any of the neurocutaneous disorders such as tuber tuberous sclerosis, neurofibromatosis, Sturge-Weber disease, any uh, history of travel to endemic areas of sister cirrhosis. These would all be reasons that neuroimaging more emergently uh, might be indicated. Can your exam help you determine who needs imaging at all? Yes, definitely. So we talked a little bit about risk factors for imaging just based on past medical history. And there are some others I think you and I talked about we'll, you'll maybe get into later. But the other obvious thing that will prompt you to get imaging <laughs> is when the exam is abnormal. So this, this doesn't take a lot of thinking. I don't think I need to spend a lot of, lot of time convincing you. But if the child actually has an abnormal neuro exam, that kid needs imaging right then. That's not a question mark. That's a just do, just it. do it. Yeah. That being said, there are other things. If, if the history that you get is that the child has had a focal event as opposed to some sort of generalized seizure activity, there's some evidence that those kids actually merit more emergent imaging as well, that they're more likely to have something that requires intervention. So we talked about how you don't have to do as much when they're older, but we obviously have to do more when they're younger. So Neonatal seizures, what kind of things make you worry, make you not worry? Are they all worry? They all. So there are a couple things to think about when you think about neonates. One is that all of them are fundamentally out to screw you. Like that's sort of their job. Uh, because they don't have to do much at baseline. Anything they do that's a little bit off can mean something really bad is happening. Or it can mean nothing much at all. And so... Like they might just be pooping. Yeah, maybe. Yes. Yeah. They're just having a hard time. Or they're dying. Yeah, right. I understand. Correct. So they're, they're tricky. It's why we always are more conservative when parents have anything to say about their behavior. The, I think the biggest caveat I would say with neonates 
is you really have to listen when parents tell you that their child is doing something. So we've all been through this, right? We're, we're used to the parents that come in, my kid is breathing funny, and it's straight up periodic breathing, and you can walk them through, right? Kids do funny things that are new, especially to new parents, that can be frightening and alarming. And part of our job as pediatricians is to recognize when what that child is doing is totally normal and talk parents through it and reassure them. The other part, though, of being a pediatrician is to listen to parents when they tell us about something that they're concerned about and make sure that it's normal or not normal. And unfortunately, seizure events or epileptic events in neonates can be very subtle and very difficult to distinguish from kind of general movement. So if they have concern about it, you should take that seriously. And at least from my perspective in the emergency department, I do more rather than less. I would rather prove that everything's okay than assume it is and be wrong. So from a neonatal standpoint, obviously their etiology for seizure can be quite different. So you're still in the land of inborn errors or metabolism causing problems. So you may have to evaluate for that. They're at higher risk overall for abnormalities in sodium, glucose, calcium. They can have paradoxine deficiency. So there's a lot of things in that realm. They may have anatomic Malformations. Malformations. Thank you. I'm having some word-finding issues this afternoon, but I'm not having a seizure seizure as far as I can tell. So they may have anatomic malformations that we obviously don't know about yet that predispose them to seizure. They may have blood in their head, either because of something related to the birth event or because of issues with vitamin K or because of somebody hurting them even that young, right? So there are uh, problems that we can see with kids. So this might be kind of an opportunity to talk about that it's important to ask about them if their baby received the vitamin K shot at birth, right? Because like vaccines, some parents refuse them for non-scientific purposes. Yeah. So this is something that's been advised by the American Academy of Pediatrics since the 1960s. We know that it's safe, we know that it's effective, and we know that it's important. But there are parents that unfortunately um, you know, believe some of the myths propagated around any sort of injections in their kids and refuse vitamin K shots, and that can have, obviously, as you know, some pretty serious repercussions in terms of bleeding later on, and that can result in scenarios like this where the child may develop bleeding in the brain and present with seizure. Infantile spasm should also be on your radar when you're seeing a child uh, under a year of life with a seizure-like activity. Infantile spasms can be very subtle. They can be jerk that you're not even sure is really a seizure. There's some great YouTube videos on them. If you haven't watched one, I suggest you do. Um, As far as boards go, they do have a couple buzzwords associated with infantile spasms. The classic word that you will see is hypsarrhythmia, which is the EEG findings in infantile spasms. They often are also associated with developmental delay. Um, They account for about 25% of seizures before the age of one. They often occur in clusters. They usually present between three and nine months of age. Uh, If you watch the videos, they often kind of jerk out their arms and then jerk them back in, and that's all that they'll do. They'll do them maybe 10, 15 times, and then they'll be fine until later when they kind of cluster again and have this happen again. There is an association of infantile spasms and tuberous sclerosis, so that's important to know. Um, the other thing that boards will want you to know is the treatment. The treatment for infantile spasms is ACTH. It's also important to know that most of these children with infantile spasms do go on to have other forms of epilepsy uh, seizure activity when they get older. Overall, infantile spasms know that it is associated with the EEG finding of hips arrhythmia, that it's associated with developmental delay, 
tuberous sclerosis, and that the treatment is ACTH. Okay, febrile seizures, my favorite. Because I feel like I have rules, you know, like I can just follow my rules. Yeah, febrile seizures are super fun because there are really good rules as long as they're simple febrile seizures, right? Yes, that's true. Yeah, so this is a good opportunity maybe to go over really quickly that we like to talk about febrile seizures in terms of two different flavors. There's your simple febrile seizures and your complex febrile seizures. And the definition goes this way, right? So for in all cases, the kid has to be febrile. So typically this is defined as a temperature greater than or equal to 38 degrees Celsius for this particular problem. And then your simple febrile seizures occur in kids that are ages six months to five years. The seizure itself lasts less than 15 minutes. It's generalized throughout its entirety, and they can only have one in a 24-hour period. So those are your simple febrile seizures. Those are the ones that you like, That's Ashley, because like. yeah. all the rules apply. Yep, go home. Yeah. Complex febrile seizures, by contrast, are kind of everything else. So the kid is either too young or too old. The seizure lasts more than 15 minutes or is focal at any time during its course, or they have more than one in 24-hour periods. So let's talk about simple first, since we like those best. And here's the bottom line for simple febrile seizures. Number one is that so long as they are immunized, these kids have the same risk for serious bacterial illness as the kid who arrives with fever alone without seizure. What that means is we get to treat them like any other kid who comes in with a fever. Do your evaluation per that. Per that. Fever. That's exactly right. So if you really think, based on the clinical exam, that uh, you're concerned about a UTI, so maybe it's a 15-month-old girl, right, with fever, then go ahead and check a urine. But if it's a three-year-old who's got a URI or an otitis, you don't have to check anything, right? So LP is rarely indicated for these kids. Obviously, if they have clinical symptoms that are concerning for meningitis, you're going to go ahead and stick a needle in their back. Now, that being said, even with simple febrile seizures, there are some kids that are a little bit of different risk. So specifically, your kids who have been non-immunized, under-immunized, or your kids whose immunization status is a little bit unclear. I like to call these kids the Jenny McCarthy kids for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, but those are kids that you're going to be a little bit more considered about whether or not they may need to be tapped. And even then, you don't always, but those are the kids I would... Think about it. I would really think about it. And the younger they are, the more likely I would be to tap those kids. The other kids that you would consider an LP in or consider more of an evaluation in are the kids who have already been pre-treated with antibiotics. So these are the kids that maybe were seen a few days ago and diagnosed with otitis and put on amoxicillin, and now they've had a febrile seizure. So the concern there is that maybe they have partially treated meningitis, and so it may not present with the same stuff to make you want to do a full-throated evaluation. What do you do for a complex febrile seizure? So complex febrile seizures are, are they trickier. A little They're a little complicated. <laughs> so simple febrile seizures are nice because the AAP has had very clear guidelines about our management for years. They revised them in 2011, and those revisions are very user-friendly. Those kinds of guidelines don't actually exist for complex febrile seizures. And the sort of traditional teaching has been that all these kids need an LP. And yet, if you actually were to go talk to folks who work in PZDs or general EDs, the fact of the matter is that many of these kids don't get LP'd. And that's been the case since studies going back into the 90s, that large portions of this population don't get LP's. And even with that, there's a very, very, very low risk of meningitis in this patient population. And even then, almost never is the seizure alone 
the indication that the child has meningitis. So where does that leave us with our evaluation? Overall, these kids still get more of a workup. They get a little bit more of an evaluation. But do you have to tap them? Depends on a couple of things. One, where you fall on the spectrum of care. Are you a very conservative provider or are you a little bit less conservative? Right, that will, your comfort on that spectrum is gonna determine a lot of the kids' evaluation. Number two is what's the reason, what propelled this kid into the complex category? So, for example, the child who's had more than one seizure in a, seizure in a 24-hour period is probably at the lowest risk Okay. Yeah. compared to some of the other kids. So pr- I think prolonged seizure activity for most of us buys you a pretty extensive evaluation because in most cases we're going to be doing things at that point to try and abort the seizure as well. I think what data tells us for complex seizures more than anything is that the kid that you see who is like, coloring in his coloring book, doing cartwheels down the hall that you have to chase down to evaluate. Even if they fit that complex criteria, that's probably the kid who doesn't need an LP in their back. Now, all of that being said, a lot of people still will choose to observe these kids for a 24-hour period just to make sure that everything else is fine. But hopefully down the road, there'll be more concrete guidelines for us because there's a lot of actual research that's been done looking at this population. For boards... Probably consider an LP, maybe, on the answer. But it's hopefully hopefully this is too gray that they won't, yeah, they won't ask. Yeah, it would you. hopefully be a pretty concrete kind of question. Yeah. You know, obviously, I think if you have a kid with, just like, just like anything else, anything in their exam that suggests meningitis or encephalitis, so failure to return to baseline as an example, or something focal on their exam, that's the kid you're going to go full court press on. Let's say you've decided to send a kid home. Is yeah. there anything specifically that you talk to the parents about? So Absolutely. So I think one of the most important things we do in, in pediatrics, and we whether it's in the emergency department or in the office, is for discharge instruction. So in the ED, we call that... Anticipatory guidance. Right. So in the ED, we call it discharge instructions. In the clinic, we call it anticipatory guidance. But that's the most important part of the visit in most cases is what do you do next? What do you expect? What should you do if something happens? And this is critically important with pediatric seizures. So especially for your kids who've come in and you think they have a new onset of non-febrile seizure, it's really important to be crystal clear with families about activity restrictions. So you shouldn't assume that they know that their kid can't go swim. Yeah, can't go swimming or shouldn't get on a bike or on a skateboard or drive a car if they're older. That these are kids that really need to be a little bit limited in their activities until they've been evaluated by a neurologist, the actual issue's been addressed, and they've been stable. So you want to make sure that they have good, safe bath routines so they're accompanied. No breathing alone. Yeah. Well, you know, I think your 14-year-old can take a shower, but somebody needs to be around. They shouldn't probably be in the bathtub. If they take a shower, someone should be around so that they know. Um, It's always a great opportunity to stress the importance of helmets, but any helmeted activities are probably activities that should be watched at that point uh, because the risk of having a seizure during those could result in pretty significant injury. I think it's something that we do less with our febrile seizures, but certainly kids can have recurrent febrile seizures, so it's important to talk about what happens if seizures recur for those families and consider some limitations in activity during that time. But febrile seizures obviously occur in much younger kids who are less likely to be out on a bike headed to their friends or in a pool by themselves, hopefully. 
hopefully. I mean, as a child, I used to have a zip line over a pool. Do you think that was <laughs> probably non-seizure friendly? That sounds awesome. It was, it was pretty awesome. Did you really have that? I really did, yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it was pretty fun. I, I don't know how we all survived it. but I don't know I how am. I survived most of childhood. I jumped off the roof. I did all sorts of crazy things. Good thing you didn't have a seizure. To At least to my knowledge so far, I've never had a seizure. It's exciting. Okay, we're going to switch gears to status epilepticus. The seizure will not stop. Yeah, so status is kind of funny, right? Because we've all been taught and... I don't want to make things tricky because I'm not sure how the AAP is going to ask this question anymore. But we've all been taught traditionally that status is 30 minutes of continuous seizure activity, right, or 30 minutes of intermittent activity without return to baseline in between. That's the traditional definition. And I think for now that's the definition I would go to as far as boards are concerned. But interestingly, there have been a lot of different definitions that have been thrown mm-hmm. out there, some of them more functional, and in that way I think a little bit more helpful in guiding our response to status. So one of the definitions that I like most has impending status happening at the five-minute mark. And the reason that they really talk about this five-minute mark is that seizures that last for more than five minutes are very unlikely to abort on their own. So that's often a really good time for us to think about intervening. So what do you start with when you are intervening for their seizure? So uh, benzos, right? Benzos and then some more benzos. Yeah, benzos, benzos, benzos are first line across the board. But there are a lot of different ones, right? There's midazolam, there's diazepam, there's lorazepam. And traditionally for home care, families have the rectal diastat or rectal valium. And uh, I think that's still what's being prescribed, although I suspect that over time that may change to intranasal midazolam kind of devices. Because interestingly, um, the evidence would suggest at this point at least for us in our emergency departments or in our clinics, that if you have an IV, um, both lorazepam and diazepam are fairly equally efficacious and probably have a similar safety profile in need, in terms of need for airway support or admission or PICU-stay. Most folks, I think, are more comfortable using lorazepam just because that's what we've done traditionally. The bigger and I think more exciting and interesting thing is that the evidence would support that if you do not have an IV, that midazolam is probably your best bet in terms of the benzo that you choose. And you have multiple potential routes of administration. So you can give it intramuscularly, you can give it intranasally with an atomizer, or you can give it buccally, uh, just in the cheek. All right. So you've given, let's say, three or four doses, real doses of... Yeah. Of a benzo. That's even more than I would. The only reason I would probably go to three or four doses would be because I was waiting for someone to pull up my next drug. Okay, fair. In general, if I've given two doses of a benzo in the patient, two adequate doses of a benzo and the patient is still seizing, then I'm going to move to my next line drug. Okay. What do you use? So it depends a little bit. Right. And I know it depends kind of on where you are practicing as well. And probably boards won't make you choose between one or the other. They may based on age. So I think neonates are going to be a different category. In older kids, I think you've really got three very good uh, IV options. So you can use levotracetam, also known in the lay world as K-E-P-P-R-A. But you can use levotracetam, you can use phenobarbital, you can use phosphonatoin. Those are probably the three most commonly used ones. I think people are moving more and more to levotracetam as a first-line agent. There's lots of evidence that it's safe and effective in this patient population. Obviously, your side effect profiles for those three medications are different. So 
Uh, phenobarbital makes you stop breathing. Yeah, it's very sedating. So if you go to phenobarb, it can be really effective, but it's the one that you're most likely to need to actually intervene with respiratory support for the child. Uh, Phosphenatoin can have some, though it's less common in the when you use phosphenatoin as opposed to it can have some issues with hypotension and arrhythmias. So here's the trick, though. So let's say you've done benzo times two, and then you've moved to let's say you went with phosphenatoin once, and now the kid is still seizing. What next? So many people will say that once you've given adequate doses of two different kinds of anti-epileptics, you're officially in status in refractory status. Oh, oh. So not just status, but refractory status, which means... It's even worse. Yeah. You yeah. better get serious because this is going to be really hard to stop. Our next best bet in the emergency department is then to choose one of the other agents that we skipped the first time. So if you've used phosphany, then go to levetiracetam or, or um, phenobarb, just as an example. If you've done that and they're still seizing, then you're kind of in big trouble. Uh-huh. Obviously, you're going to make sure that you've got a lot of other people on board at this time, like your intensivists... Uh, because potentially every once in a while, really, 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 really refractory cases, they do crazy stuff like uh, inhaled gases and other stuff to try and abort. In most cases, though, the seizure can be stopped with drips. So once you've done levetiracetam or phenobarb or phosphenny, then your next step is going to be to move to drips. The most commonly used one is midazolam. So midazolam drip is effective like 80% of the time, and it's a medicine that we use a lot that we're comfortable with. The side effect profile is pretty good. So that's often what people will go to first. They can also use propofol. Obviously, we shy away from propofol drips in kids to some degree because of concern for propofol infusion syndrome. And then lastly, you can consider penobarb, which has its own set of issues, probably most significant of which is it causes pretty profound hypotension. So those kids may need to be on concomitant pressors in order to maintain them in that. So I would say midazolam is probably your first bet. Probably at this point they've bought themselves a tube somewhere along this route. Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we've talked about uh, we've talked about our, medi- our medication approach and abortion of the seizure, but not actually the rest of the gig. Well, you know, just, you know... If there was a question about it, that this might be a time to consider an airway. Yeah, for I think well before that. Yeah. So obviously the problem with uh, status is that it's not just that the kid is continuing to seize, but that you can have this cascade to really big bad things like cardiovascular collapse and death, which just a little. It's not yeah. Good. So there's so while we're working our way through systemically to abort the seizure, we want to also be attentive to maintaining homeostasis for the patient, which means that we have to do things like innovate, control their airway, um, give them fluid, make sure that they're cardiovascularly stable despite the ongoing seizure activity. And then at the same time, be looking for potentially reversible causes for the seizure. So these are the kids that you're going to want to make sure your electrolytes are normal. And at least maybe less for the boards, but certainly from an emergency standpoint, don't just check your blood sugar once. So you check your blood sugar at the beginning and it's normal. But if the kid has continued to seize and you're 45 minutes in, you want to make sure that their blood sugar is actually still okay because they can actually burn through glucose stores pretty quickly. Um, you want to look, consider tox, right? So is this an INH overdose? Is this a kid who's gotten into something they shouldn't have that's causing them to continuously seize? Is it a TCA overdose, for example? You want to make sure that you have considered, unfortunately, that the kid, the 14-year-old may be pregnant and eclamptic, oh, right? So yeah. you can magnesium. magnesium for those kids. So there are a lot of reversible things that you need to consider in this population. 
And then obviously you want to consider infectious etiologies. So these are kids that oftentimes, if they're continuing to seize, people start early broad spectrum antibiotics. All right, well, that was uh, very good information. Thanks for helping us out today. My pleasure, anytime.